Hello, and welcome back to How To Be Happy, a podcast where we explore all the ways that we can live a happier life. Each week, we're talking to happiness experts, celebrities, and ordinary people to uncover their secrets to living a good life. My name is Kate DeBrito. I'm your host and guide on this journey into happiness. Let's begin. It's hard to imagine doing the sort of work that Rob Battisti does. As the senior clinical psychologist at the Cancer Centre for Children at the Children's Hospital Westmead, he's working with children encountering an incredible life challenge, as well as with their families, their friends and communities. I think it must take an incredible amount of courage to be present for people in these circumstances week after week, especially as the result is not always a happy one. But as you'll hear in this podcast, Rob is a pretty special guy. He's also the clinical director at Mind Plasticity, which is a multidisciplinary mental health service. He's incredibly smart and wise, but he assures me that even he has bad days. We talked about grief and about resilience and how some of his personal habits help set a pathway for good mental health. Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Dr. Rob, can I call you Dr. Rob? Yes, Dr. Rob's fine. <laughs> You're um, the clinical director and principal clinical psychologist at Mind Plasticity. That's a clinic with a lot of different psychologists working in it. And you also yeah. are senior clinical psychologist at the Cancer Centre for Children Westmead. Have I got all that pretty correct? Yeah, practices, psychiatry and OT, uh, group programs, neuropsychology, social work, pretty mixed. You're obviously, you know, just the name of the clinic, Mind Plasticity, you know, is a bit of a take on the sort of neuroplasticity, the fact that our brains grow and change. And we might talk about some of that in a minute. But first, I just wanted to ask you mm -hmm. about your work at the Cancer Centre, the Children's Cancer Centre at Westmead. Obviously, children, sick children, very heartbreaking for anyone, let alone their parents and the families that you're dealing with. Is it mm. sort of a way that, you know, people can ever prepare for potential loss or prepare for grief? I actually get asked this question really often because especially when we know it's going to come and it's not a straightforward answer. The kind of, but no. So... There are things that we can do to not be stuck in a future that hasn't happened yet mm -hmm. and the distress around that. Mm -hmm. So that fear of knowing something is possible or likely or definitely going to happen can be paralyzing and can stop children and families, communities from having quality of life and living. But nothing really truly prepares us for the absence of someone who's supposed to be there. And I say supposed to be there because there's a very clear distinction between someone who's had a very long full life, who's reached old age and is done and they know it and feel it and it feels correct for them to move on. And even though it's distressing for family members and there's loss, there's a um, an order to it. Mm. When it's a child, for families, it's it's incorrect. Mm. So it's it's a, essentially a violation of how things are supposed to be. We're supposed to leave our kids behind when we go, and 
And so ironically, the children and young people often deal with it much better because they are better at living in the here and now. And they haven't had all those years to learn how to no worry and obsess over things. And, and so they're able to often have that quality of life up until the end. But what I said before, what we try to do is help families be present to what is happening now. And sometimes that's actually kids just continuing to go to school because that's normal. It's correct. It's what makes them feel good. Rob, this might be too big a question. I don't know if there is any answer, but when we do go through grief, obviously there's factors like you just miss the company of, of that person, but there is a, there's another part of it. Why, why do we grieve for things? Is it just about loss? Because we can grieve other things besides people, can't we? We can grieve anything that has a meaning for us that we're attached to that um, we are, we, it forms part of our identity. So, you know, someone might have been a teacher for decades and, and have lived and breathed that and, I don't know, they were made redundant or something and have experienced an intense and prolonged grief and loss because of the community aspect that's attached to that and the meaning and purpose. Grief is, uh, it's the absence of something that we can remember and that really defined us all, we drew enormous meaning from or purpose. Mm. And it's a correct feeling because it it's how we know what matters to us. And when we do move through it, it helps guide us around living a life that's full of value. But at some point to, I guess, get on with the living, people need to move past that perhaps overwhelming feeling of loss that could you know make it impossible for them to go about their day-to-day tasks does that always mean letting go because I guess that's something people struggle with isn't it that they feel that by moving on they're letting go of the person look it depends what it's about grief like I don't think it truly goes away in that um, you can think back on something or someone who you have lost and still have those feelings what it is is that we get better at at carrying it and living with it. Mm. And it doesn't just become this suffering experience. It becomes part of our vitality because, you know, we might have nostalgia, reminisce, and it might be awful sad feelings that also makes us feel happy, you know, that Mm. happy, sad feeling that's beautiful. Following loss, yes, sometimes we do shut down and it's about that life does keep moving forwards and We have to participate in it by necessity and the act of continuing with life and our responsibilities or things that are meaningful for us helps us get a bit better at carrying it and and particularly when we share it with people that matter to us and who are supportive of us. And so it's not a disservice to continue to have a life when there's been loss, even if it's loss of a, a dear loved one. These are life-affirming actions and they are, I guess, about us paying homage to the fact that we we do get to be alive and engage with the world and do meaningful things mm. and have meaningful relationships. And it can be hard at first, but it gets easier to carry it. Are there some qualities that you find in people consistently that help support them better in grief and perhaps move through the really difficult times better? Yes, it, it is 100% the supports they have in their life. So people who have 
close relationships, family or friends, both preferably, where they already feel able to be safely vulnerable with them. Uh, so that doesn't necessarily mean you need to pour your heart, heart out, but that you know you could. Uh, and that just being in their company, whether you speak or not, produces a feeling of support because you know that they know mm. what you're going through. And I guess the quality in the individual is a willingness to be vulnerable, to not sort of suck it up and pretend like everything's okay. It's a willingness to be human and go, I have feelings and these are correct and I am supposed to express them so I can process them and learn to live with them. You've said that a couple of times that, that these feelings are, are correct. Is that something you think in our society that people feel that they don't have that right to express certain emotions, that certain emotions aren't correct? Yeah, um, there's been, I don't know how many years now, a push around almost like extreme psychological wellness where having negative, well, what's seen as negative, sorry, mental states like sadness or worry, a bit of anxiety, uh, not feeling motivated, down. We're being told that those are bad things and we need to do something to fix them. That we that aging and looking like we're aging is bad. Uh, you need to be a certain weight and all of those things and present like you're strong or fit or capable. And that is missing fundamentally half of what makes us human because we have all our emotions for very real functional reasons. Sadness is one of the most important emotions because it makes us slow down. It makes us reflect and look at what has happened and whether we need to do anything different to inform our future actions. If we don't slow down, we just keep forging forwards and maybe we're not thinking about who we're hurting, including ourselves. Even you know, fear and worry, those are functional emotions that help us be mindful of safety and to foresee problems. So someone who is relentlessly positive actually isn't necessarily prepared for some of the challenges life throws at them. And so they can be blindsided when that happens and get hit really hard. Do you think in the old days, like 100 years ago, were people better at this? Were they better at sitting with emotion and just going through them than we are now? Oh, look, mental illness is part of the human condition. It might present a little bit differently over time, depending on you know, context. So for example, internet addictions wouldn't have existed when there was no internet, for example. And definitely social media has facilitated difficulties around body image and eating disorders. And you know, we're seeing far more of those, say, amongst males uh, than we, we used to, at least that we identified. But it is fundamentally part of the human condition because we have these incredibly complex uh, organs in our brains that stuff's going to go wrong. And you know, the rates of mental illness are astronomical. So you know, up until mid-late 30s, it's essentially one in four. You know, the one in five statistic is factoring in older individuals who they do have lower rates of it, but they've got other health conditions. So in the sort of roughly under 40s group, it's really, really high. It's every fourth person who would meet full criteria for a mental illness. And so you only have to look around a room and go, there's there's at least one or more people here. They're not just at home. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are living with it silently. How um, we've dealt with it. So there's this really interesting concept from acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, which is um, type of cognitive uh, therapies that's called clean pain and dirty pain. 
uh, and I really like it for explaining it to people. So clean pain is the correct pain that comes from living and engaging with life. So loss and grief, feeling sad when something bad happens, angry when something happens that makes you angry, all those frustrated when something's frustrating, like all those very normal things. Mm -hmm. Dirty pain comes from an, an unwillingness to experience clean pain. It's, it's the suffering that comes from the avoidance. So for example, someone who drinks away their emotions, the dirty pain is maybe a hangover or maybe it's not coming home until the next day and family not knowing where you are and the conflicts that causes or the fact that it's a depressant and so if it with repeated use can contribute to depression or maybe it's other substance use and you know all the disasters that can come along with problematic dependency uh, or maybe it's about avoiding going out to see friends because our minds say oh what if they think badly of us or what if i'm not happy enough and i'm because you know i've just lost my child and no one's going to want to be around me i'm just going to you know bring the party down and then loneliness is the suffering that comes from, you know, that unwillingness to go, okay, it's all right if I'm not my best. These are my friends. I'll be kind. In your work, you're working on helping people understand the difference between the, the clean pain and, and the dirty pain, I, I guess, and some of the things that they might be able to do to help make changes in their life. I guess that there's probably you know, as many different techniques or, or ways of working with people as there are people and, and their individual problems. But are there any, you know, if you could think of two or three specific techniques that people could bring into their daily life that would help with their their ability to cope, their resilience, what, what do you tend to advise? I'm pretty sure this is accurate. The World Health Organization has actually identified that the number one mental health intervention that people can do is uh, physical activity. And there was some recent information uh, that came out that I think even once a week is, is like you can almost bank it, uh, that even once a week is enough. If you're doing all your exercise in one day, even that is enough to, to help. Now, of course, more often is good up to a point but you know that feeling that comes from successfully doing something especially if it's hard but the neurochemical changes that come along with it it's the number one thing that you can do that is accessible to some degree even if it's going for a walk being because that will mean you maybe you'll be outside mm. though even walking indoors in a treadmill still does it because you're moving and uh, it's good for your heart. It helps with brain inflammation, which you know just sort of helps to prevent us having those problematic feelings. Do you think that's something that most psychologists are now, you know, I guess prescribing to patients? It, it's one that you can't sort of control that that much, can you? Because you've, the person still has to decide that they'll go out for the walk or, or go to the gym. But is it something that you really you work with your clients to get them exercising? I definitely do, and everyone I train, I encourage them to, and I think they do. I'd like to hope and think that all psychologists are being mindful of it. And the reality is it's a behaviour like any other behaviour we might be trying to change in therapy. And so we can look at barriers to it. We can look at like problematic beliefs that are getting in the way of it. Uh, we can problem solve uh, other obstacles. Uh, there's, you know, and you know, for people who really struggle to do it, sometimes part of therapy, we will go for a walk with someone in the session and talk through the experience. Because sometimes people, for example, they might have severe agoraphobia where they struggle to be outdoors. Mm. 
and in open spaces or crowds, such as with um, social anxiety. And so uh, it's about figuring out, okay, what is getting in the way of this person being able to do something that I know is going to produce some some assistance for the mental well-being, and 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 that that is often a core focus. The other one being sleep. I would say actually sleep is one of like if not the most important thing for mental well-being because mm. it's to do with our resourcing and the the capacity we have for, to face the day. So essentially, sleep, exercise, and diet. Like even though you would think of these as GP behaviours behaviors that people have to engage in so the gp might advise around what the person can safely do or should eat but our job is to get them engaged in the behavior and i think that probably we're all becoming more aware how those physical components affect your mental health and your your mental wellness i know it hasn't always been that way Mm. my mother's sort of battled depression for many years and i would say unfortunately you know it, it happened for her at a time when the medical profession seized on the idea of depression being a biological illness and we will solve it with an antidepressant and of course while you know I don't need to tell you it, it antidepressants are obviously incredibly useful for some people they haven't solved the issue of depression and I think that in some ways it was a shame because people didn't at that time by saying this is just a chemical imbalance they took that agency away from a lot of people, which allowed them to do the things that you're talking about to potentially also create that support framework. So I, I think it's I think it's great that it's now becoming part of the conversation. It obviously wasn't always the case. So other things that people can do, what about what about mindset? And again, I'll, I'll pull us back from people who obviously have some, you know, really serious mental health concerns and that they're in your clinic but what about for people who are just maybe struggling with life a a little bit they you would be advising that sleep exercise and diet can be really helpful in keeping them on an even keel what about the way they look at the world or the way they think yeah so those three are like pillars or foundations that create essential resourcing to then be able to do other things but they're not enough by themselves to be fulfilled they're enough to kind of keep your head above water Other things we can do in terms of mindset, one really important one is being able to be aware of our emotional capacity. So if you think about it almost like fuel in a tank, hypothetically, if we've had a good night's sleep, eating well, doing a bit of exercise, we've got, say, 100% capacity. So we've got a full tank, sorry, at the start of the day. Now, just by existing through the day, that's going to use some of that fuel, even if it's for things that we enjoy. Things that we enjoy might top up that fuel level, but to initiate or engage in it still needs something just Mm. just to start it. But even things that we enjoy, like you might love your job, but it's still going to fatigue you. So when we are presented with different challenges throughout the day, something we need to ask ourselves is, do I have space for this? Do I have enough fuel left to deal with this thing? And even if I do, will I have enough left over for the other things I need to do today? And where will that leave me? Will I get to the end of my day and essentially be on zero? What is that going to look like? Because being zero capacity means you're essentially paralytic, like you've got nothing left in your tank. And so uh, really, like when people uh, often say, oh, I need to give 100% at work, I'm like, no, you don't. You shouldn't be giving more than 80% Mm. because you need at least 20% just to deal with the getting to and from work, uh, 
making dinner, doing some exercise, being able to wind down so you can sleep well and, and deal with things the next day. Giving 100% at work is something that is a very rare thing that should happen. It should only be us very occasionally. And it's about being mindful that you're going to be burnt out afterwards. Do you have any techniques around that? I, I talked to a writer recently who said that she uh, arranges her day like a sort of quadrant and she she looks at sort of, you know, her writing, uh, her social life, her self-care. She sort of divides it so that she does have that time. She devotes a lot of time when she's writing a book, obviously, to that to that writing process. Is there is that a good method or do you have different methods for, for helping people to gauge their, their fuel tank? Yeah, look, having order and structure does help enormously because it makes the day predictable, which therefore there's um, less we have to deal with on the fly. So, you know, what you're describing there is just like having a routine. So routine definitely makes it easier to get through the day because we don't have to think about what comes next unless unexpected things do come up. And in that way, we are better able to have a sense of what we need for what. The challenge with routine though, is that uh, we have to be willing to be flexible with it if we are depleted. So you might not start the day with a full tank. And so it's about being willing to go, okay, what do I need to let go of in order to look after myself and to be able to do the things that are truly matter to me, not just the ones that I think I have to do. So we can sometimes um, deprioritize our well-being because we're like, oh, but I, I need to not uh, show myself not being my best at work or in a social situation, and that can come at the cost of things that look that are about our well-being. Rob, if you spend any time on Instagram, I, I hope you don't spend very much at all, but you probably have seen it if you look at follow people in any self-development capacity, there's a real kind of gung-ho aspect to it at the moment. And I know you talk about men's mental health and it seems to be especially in that category, this sort of like you've got to slay the day. It feels like a lot. You know, you've got to get up at 5 a.m., you've got to journal, you've got to have done like your hot yoga and and all of these sort of things have got to happen before you even, you know, reach 8 o'clock. Is that part of that? Is that wellness sort of trend a, a little bit? It doesn't feel very healthy in some ways. Look, any extreme behaviour has the potential to be problematic. It can, it's not that these things can't be beneficial, It's but it's about understanding what is the functional purpose of them and how they're actually helping us. Is it the case that we, we need to do these things in order to get through the day versus are these things that we're doing that just to kind of enhance the day, not because we're holding on by our fingernails? Mm. So for some people, it works, but it definitely does not work for everyone. And also because they're quite extreme, they can be very inaccessible. Often they're very expensive or or there's a lot of cost associated with them. So it can be invalidating for people who can't access these things due to finances or location. uh, So, you know, pushing, going going for a a. 5am swim or whatever it is every morning and doing uh, yoga at the sunrise um, at the beach well, what happens if you live in the countryside or, um, you know, like uh, like we're getting to the beach at that time is just not feasible. It can you know, create envy and jealousy and, and make you feel like you're not doing the right thing because you can't do that thing. And so my answer to that is there's many, many different ways of looking after yourself. And because wellness is something people pursue, it's also a marketable thing, meaning that people are going to sell it. So the question you should be asking yourself is, is this actually helping me if you're doing these things? And is it getting to the point of obsession where I can't be flexible 
around my wellness behaviours because I need it so much. What are the biggest mistakes you see people making around their general mental health? I think it's actually not taking time to consider that the way they feel is correct, you know, when they're having stresses and things come up, so not pausing to reflect mm-hmm. and going, oh, that kind of affected me. You know, something I come across quite often is psychological injury. So like in the workplace, for example, uh, so let's say someone had a physical injury, they slipped and broke their arm mm-hmm. uh, at work. It's very easy for people to wrap their heads around and uh, for colleagues to commiserate with them and management to be supportive and maybe work cover and all that stuff happening. And it's because you've got something visible, like a, you know, like a cast on your arm, you know, people sign and everything. But you can have psychological injuries that are just or more impairing than that. And people think they're being weak when they don't feel able to face the day or aren't as motivated. What do you mean by a psychological injury, Rob? What would be an example of that? So psychological injury, an example of it might be uh, where uh, someone has been exposed to uh, something quite traumatic. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're in the health profession, maybe um, it's a particularly traumatic death, like of a patient. If maybe it's, you know, in a school context, it's a violent episode or multiple violent episodes over time, uh, you know, from kids or parents. Sometimes it's bullying Mm. uh, where, you know, you go to work and you don't feel safe, you don't feel able to be yourself or or to school or to any context, really. It's a psychological injury is defined by uh, where even when you're outside uh, the context, that situation, those feelings still persist when you think about it and it might even sort of seep out and bleed and impact how you see life in general. And time away might bring some relief, but the idea of going back can be extremely distressing and and it doesn't resolve on its own or mostly doesn't, in which case there needs to be rehabilitation of it, just like a physical injury. I guess like a physical injury, if you didn't if you had a broken arm but you didn't get any treatment, you might find that over time, yes, it heals in some way, but it, it causes other problems. Is it the same thing? You've got a psychological injury and you haven't dealt with it and therefore it can then lead to more complex issues over time. Absolutely. So, um, so for example, um, let's say, all right, I'll use your profession, let's say someone lived and breathed being a journalist but they just got completely burnt out by the process i'm sure this is a made-up scenario you know you can't <laughs> all, but uh you know relentless hours uh where you know lots of sacrifice around uh you know needing to live and breathe the work mm. maybe it's even you know like someone like who's a foreign correspondent and they're yeah. going to war zones and things and they go through so much that their mind just can't contemplate the idea of going back in it again and so they go well I don't like journalism anymore I need to go do something else I need to change careers Mm. and in their calmer moments they will reflect and go but I loved it but I just don't feel like I can do it Mm. now the easy answer would be say like oh maybe you've outgrown it Mm. but that's probably not the case it's most likely that you've been injured 
And so it's just too distressing for your mind to to deal with the day-to-day of it. And uh, I know a few journalists and I remember them telling me about um, their Christchurch massacre and having to review the video footage, like the unedited Mm. video footage, so that the rest of us got to see something that wasn't even near as confronting. And that, that content moderation, I guess what it is, is like someone has to look at it yeah and that has a lasting impact and it it can and, and i guess as per your question yeah it can result in uh you feeling like this thing isn't for you whereas actually it's a workplace injury i remember that day of the christchurch shooting and was in the newsroom and you're right people did have to to go through that process but the thing I remember most about that is obviously it was a horrific situation and it was unfolding. But when people became aware that it had been filmed and that it was streamed, this absolute silence and hush came over the newsroom. It's it's interesting because I think people think journalists are very lacking in empathy, but mostly they're very interested and curious about people and yeah, it was a it was a devastating day to, you know, for the journalists who were covering it. And I think that that's that is a great point about not being able to see people's injuries, psychological injuries. I think it's something that can make people feel very not unseen or not seen, right? When they've got these sort of, if especially if they have a, a have a psychological injury and they're aware of it and they're maybe trying to get help. If you're not in a, a workplace that supports that, it must be very disempowering or people must feel very disregarded. Isolating. Yeah, isolating. Rob, are you always incredibly calm and wise in your day-to-day life? <laughs> <laughs> no. I am a human being like everyone else. So in order to be able to function, I have to do all these things that I'm saying to look after myself and I definitely fail at it uh, (laughs) just like everyone else does. And that's okay as long as I'm looking at my behaviour and seeking to improve on myself or to understand the impacts of what I do on others. So I feel good about no. that. <laughs> I feel good about that fact. Does that make me a bad person? Well, tell me, what are your personal habits for good mental health? You're a, you're a young father. You have a, a, have a daughter. How old is she now? Two and a half. Two and a half. All right. Wow. That's a, that's a world of fun. So tell me, what, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? What are your habits that help support you? It's, it is practicing what I preach. I exercise very regularly and uh, I do that in a way that sort of works with the timing of my partner and like parenting and work responsibilities and things and um, even though sometimes it's easy to get uh, caught up in needing the routine of it it's I do try to be mindful when maybe I need to have a break or it's just not possible because of other things and that's okay I just try to hit that sort of you know a few times a week at least in terms of that uh, physical and mental wellness aspect Diet's a perpetual struggle, so there's so much great tasting stuff out there. And rather than um, not have it at all, I just try to be mindful of how much I consume. Should we tell people because... what you had for breakfast this morning before we started recording? <laughs> Rob admitted yeah, that some, he uh... <laughs> admitted that he had banana bread with butter. It's doesn't yeah, it's freshly not, made. It's not really the worst thing in the world, is it? No, no. Uh, there's so much good food in mm. Sydney, and it's it's part of 
being able to human, we get to experience these things and it's just about being sensible about it. So food, uh, food and diet and exercise, what else? Any other little sleep, tip, tr- tips and habits? Yeah, so having a young child, sleep is a premium because often you, when you're getting things done, it's when they're asleep and so you don't get quite as much. We can bank sleep to a degree. So what that means is that if we don't get as many hours as we'd like throughout the week, uh, as long as a day a week, we get a little bit more. So maybe like nine or 10, it's, it reasonably compensates for it. I do all the, the good sleep hygiene behaviors. So I try not to use devices in bed. I don't spend time in bed when I'm awake so that when I get in bed, my brain just goes, oh, this is a place I'm meant to be asleep. So, mm-hmm. and that's what I you know, preach to people as well. So I try to do the same thing. I love spending time with my partner and my daughter and it's trying to be present to that and not on my phone. So it's very easy just to pick up a device and get engaged with it and miss what's going on in front of you. And I do succumb like others, but um, I've definitely you know, cut right back on that social media use because it's it's like a poker machine. Mm. Um, it is like a poker machine, isn't it? You think to yourself, yeah, I'll just but, go and, and have a quick look at something and then suddenly you look up and 15 minutes have passed. If you're lucky, it's only 15 minutes. If you're lucky, yeah. So, And like poker machines, they're designed to maximise engagement but are even smarter because there's these sort of social media algorithms to show you content that you want to see. So you keep in those, those hits of dopamine mm. pleasure that uh, when you when you see what more and more of what you want to see and so you end up not getting off it. Rob, thank you yeah. very much. I really appreciate your time today. I think I'd love to have you back on another time and, and we can talk about some of these other subjects. But thank you very much for coming on. No, I'll be happy to. And yeah, it was a pleasure. <laughs>